0: Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris each pick two movies around a theme that we've picked for ourselves and then have some fun with them. Chris, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, John. How are you doing today?
0: I'm not doing too bad. I have loaded up on Slurpee and Candy and uh, because I'm a child.
1: (laughs) Well, because I'm an adult, I am loaded up on uh, Scotch and Jambuie because I'm allowed to drink today. It's my my drink day. So I'm ready to uh, imbibe, indulge, and talk about our topic today.
0: You know the most adult thing about that sentence was not that you were drinking but that it's your drink day. It's it's the day that I get to drink. It's the day I'm allowed to drink. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the adult part of that kind of, of that idea.
1: I've gotten to a point where I have drink days now and uh, this is the one, so I'm going to make the most of it.
0: Absolutely. That's always the best way to podcast and I under no circumstances discourage it. So <laughs> Uh, so the theme that we picked for this week is film noir and Chris, this was, uh, you let kind of led the charge on this one. So I'll, let you sort of, uh, intro us into the theme and then we can get to our two movies.
1: Yeah, this is, this is definitely my, my baby. When we talked about conceiving of this podcast and talking about things we wanted to address, um, uh, as much as it centers around specific filmmakers and stuff, film noir is something that is really dear to my heart. It was probably, if I recall, probably one of the first things that I, I recommended as an episode. So, real quickly... Um, I'm not going to go into so much what film noir is. There's a lot of discussions in theory and theory, and there's a lot of arguments, too, uh, as, as to what constitutes film noir. But for our, our discussion, we're going with classic film noir. So think of it from uh, late thir- 30s, early 40s. Um, a lot of textbooks and stuff will kind of tag uh, Houston's The Maltese Falcon as kind of the real starting point for what defines like classic film noir. <clears throat> all the way up until the late uh, 50s with uh, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil is kind of like the ending point of what that classic period looks like. So that's what we're concerning ourselves with. For me, it's a huge personal uh, touchstone. So um, I may have talked about this in in, in the past, but I grew up on these movies. Uh, I I think I mentioned at one point, my father came over to America from Germany in the early 50s, didn't have a grasp of the language, and one of the things that he gravitated toward was... Uh, the hard-boiled detective and crime films of the late 30s and and, and, and 40s. Things like Humphrey Bogart was was his idol and, and thus became my idol growing up. So when other kids were watching in the late 70s and, and 80s, a lot of the blockbustery stuff, I was seeing that too, but my most cherished memories are sitting with my dad watching Casablanca and watching The Maltese Falcon, um, watching things like The Big Sleep, which is... Uh, one of the the, the greatest kind of detective slash noirs of of all time. So it's a thing that's near and dear to my heart. But, John, because I know that you are probably not as familiar with the genre as a whole, I wanted to do something different and kind of go towards something that is a classic touchstone of the genre. So something that if you were to define film noir and you say this hits all the buttons, this movie does it. But it's not... One of the it's not a Humphrey Bogart film. It's not one of the big classics of all time It's still probably to me one of the greatest film noirs of of all time Um, and it is 1947's out of the past Starring Robert Mitchum, one of the most badass badasses to ever be on, on film. Directed by Jacques Tournier, or Jack Turner, as he was known in America when he would direct. Uh, a guy who signifies the best at the time of weaving light and shadow into his films. He is, um, for those who may not might not know him, he uh, was a huge uh, Presents for Val Lewton, so Val Lewton's kind of chiller films of the late 30s and, and 40s. Things like The Original Cat People uh, was directed by Jacques Tournier. Uh, I Walked With a Zombie, one of the, the, the first and greatest kind of zombie films that dealt with zombies as the kind of Haitian voodoo zombies. Uh, the, the Leopard Man, which in horror annals, uh, if you've ever seen the, the Leopard Man, it has one of the most famous Kind of spine tingling scenes of all time, uh, all done with with noise and innuendo and 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 just kind of staging, and and that is what typifies film noir. So when we talk about film noir, we're talking about uh, light and dark film noir, dark film, Uh, we're talking about femme fatales, we're talking about tragic heroes, we're talking about morality at the crux of whatever scenario is playing out, whether it's a crime film or a gangster film. And few films do it as classically um, as Out of the Past does. So real quick, overview this is uh robert mitchum as a gumshoe detective who is hired by an early role by kirk douglas playing just playing it to the teeth uh he's hired to find a woman who's run off with forty thousand dollars after shooting him three times and leaving him for dead he did not die he sends uh mitchum whose name is uh jeff bailey kind of out to go find this this woman. He does, and in classic film noir style, they fall in love. Things happen, uh, double crosses happen time and time again, and it's really about... Um this guy coming to grips with this type type of a woman and the type of person he is and the type of life he wants to lead and kind of what happens as a result is getting mixed up in this this weird caper that in, that at points involves um, uh, a. a a deaf companion uh crazy murders that are being hidden in closets um and an incredible death by fishing line which is wonderful and 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 just some of the best dialogue uh and 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 shadow play that i've ever seen in a film so that's kind of what it is without getting into detail for me, it's the perfect introduction without being too popular as to what film noir is. So with that in mind, as a kind of um, 101 to the tenets of film noir, John, how did it affect you and what did you think?
0: I So I was thinking of it first in terms of... Uh in comparison to the last episode where we were watching movies that were three to four hours long and in which the plot was so threadbare that you could, it was hard to get a grasp on it. Whereas this movie, the I, this movie especially, has the sort of reverse thing where it is a very, very tight 97-minute runtime and it absolutely barrels through plot. Um, yeah. The, um... The initial, like when you're talking about how uh, uh, Bailey is sent to uh, to find the woman who uh, shot uh, Kirk Douglas, um, that is the like chronologically that is the beginning of the movie. But the actual framing device for that story is uh, after Bailey has uh, moved on from at that point in his life and he's telling this uh the story of his past to his current girlfriend because someone has come from the past which i suspect is how you get the title um and very much so and he and and she seems to very much like she she likes him it doesn't matter what he did in the past she's she's on board but he has to tell the story because stuff is stuff has come back to roost and he's gonna have to deal with it so he's like i'm gonna tell you everything and the speed at which everything moves is is considerable because the and and, and it, and it kind of has to be but um yeah it it both moves really quickly when you go from like i went down to mexico to find her and then immediately fell in love that i was surprised with the second time i watched it it felt a bit better but the the first the first time i was like wait that like what what else is going to happen in this movie because i'd assume that would be most of the thing is um is that thing but they skipped to it because this movie is about so many other things happening
1: yeah and i think not to cut cut you short but but in the in the interest of putting things short. I mean, movies of that time period really play with a shorthand. So time is accelerated. So of course he meets her and within five minutes, they're in love. Within 10 minutes later, right there, they're 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 hatching their escape from uh, Wit Sterling, who is the uh, Kirk Douglas character. So, I mean, there is a weird sense of time compression in these films that out of necessity, because it is so plot driven and it is so Tight and condensed in time, that um, it does sometimes take a little while to get used to. So, did you just kind of roll with it once you watch it the, the second time? Did the rhythm feel more comfortable to you?
0: I so I did this for both movies, um, and this this sort of something I hadn't considered in terms of how I watch movies and how I tend to intake movies is that I uh, I after watching both of these movies, it very much was became aware of just how I tend to just sort of take in movies completely without much of a critical eye, especially like, at least on a first run, I'm just like, okay, I'm just experiencing this. I'm just here. Like it's in movies where you're trying to solve mysteries and figure out conspiracies and stuff. Like the plot is really important, but I'm not going to sit there with a notepad and, you know, try and figure it out the first one. I'm just going to let it happen. Um, and so in the second rewatch and like reading a Wikipedia plot summary, I was like, all right, I think I have the pieces here. Let's take a second crack at it. And then the second (laughs) crack, that's when I started to like actually understand what was going on in, in both movies. And so I, it's, I guess almost as a weird counterpoint, and this isn't something we need to dwell on, but um, as much as the time is compressed in his recounting of the story to his, his current girlfriend, I think her name is Anne. Yeah. uh, He does sort of, it feels like, this, I'm not sure if relationship dynamics worked differently in the 40s, but uh really dwelling, luxuriating in the details of how hot and awesome your old flame was, instead of, yeah, I fell in <laughs> love with her, she was a thing, like, we can, re- we can be adults about that, but maybe we don't need to, like, really, like, there may be other parts we can focus on instead of, she was hot. <laughs> As, as far as the as far as the recounting and like how the the plotting sequences go, it was mostly um watching it that second time really was I was able to bring it into focus in a way that again it's just I'm not used to that kind of pacing and that kind of like and and, and actually watching those movies a second time it's like oh these actually like check out like I, when you watch film noir Chris like are you what how does plot sort of I mean I guess you've I mean, You've, I'm sure you've seen a lot more of these at this point. Like, how oh, yeah. do you how do you usually a plot, approach plot when you're watching these kind of movies for the first time?
1: So for me, when I watch these movies, especially for the first time, um, I, I am very because of my familiar, my familiarity with it, and because this, these are the movies that I grew up with. I mean, very much so. I probably watched more movies from the 40s and 50s than I did from the 70s and 80s, at least until I was like you know, 14, 15 years old, because that was what connected my father and I. We had very little in common except our love of those films. So when I watch these films for the first time, the rhythm, at least, I automatically fall into. Um, So when the mechanics happen and it still hits me like that now when a double cross occurs or when a particular line hits uh i it it just it sets me off and i am one of those people that will just laugh out loud and just point and shout at the screen when something happens and 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 there are some ring dingers uh that Mitchum gets off in this movie so as, as far as how that that pacing works i think just by nature of being so familiar with it I, I i just take it in very quickly one of the things that's interesting is that um jane greer who who plays kathy the femme fatale the very classic femme fatale in this movie um y- you have to get across in a very short amount of time how alluring she is this is a person who shot kirk douglas like four times left him for dead stole forty thousand dollars trips to mexico and Kirk Douglas still wants her back. So he you have a very short amount of time where you have to show that she is the type of person that warrants, you know, a, a huge gangster wanting someone wanting her back after she shot him and left him for dead. Um, and the way that they do it and this whole movie is, is like this. Um, so much of this. I I want to talk about just how great the directing is from uh, Tournier with the shadows and just the constant use of of bars and stripes playing across people's faces. But the film was adapted by a gentleman named um, Daniel Mainwaring. And the dialogue in it is incredible and what it winds up showing you at least in those beginning pieces is um jeff bailey jeff markham first he he's called jeff bailey at this gas station because the movie does have this incredible kind of um framing device where it starts in the middle then becomes a flashback and then goes back to the present again so his real name is jeff bailey um When he meets her, they have this kind of conversation where he kind of realizes that she might be playing him a bit. He asks her straight out, you know, uh, $40,000, and she claims that she didn't steal it. Um, Something's going on, but in the way that they talk to each other and in the way that they rise to each other, you get that shorthand of he's falling for her, not by her looks, even though she is Very classically gorgeous, Uh, but just by the way that she's able to hold her own in her conversation with him. He generally holds the conversation in every dialogue that he has. He is the top dog, and the way that she's able to kind of keep up pace with him and in fact kind of call him off as being clumsy in their initial encounters, uh, that's the shorthand that kind of makes this work. And I, at least for me, I instantly recognize and fall into that pattern and just accept it. Which is a really just long-winded way of me saying it just feels more natural to me. So when I see a movie like this, I'm able to kind of hit its rhythms and its cadences pretty quickly.
0: No, that's that's I that's that's encouraging. Um, on that note, and then this is going to pivot from the I guess the pacing and the dialogue stuff. Although I definitely wrote down some of my favorite lines too. Um, do you get the sense? And maybe this is. Uh, I don't know if this is a a larger film noir question or not. Do you get the sense that there, the relationship between, uh, the main, let me look up or it's Kathy, right? Yeah. Um, Kathy, uh, the main relationship between Kathy and Bailey. Um, obviously it gets derailed in the end of the flashback when she kills Fisher. Um, Mm -hmm. do you like, to me that, uh, do you have a sense that there that there was any chance of a relationship or is the, and they just sort of tragically went off the rails and everything happened afterwards? Or was it always sort of like, yes, she lied about stealing the 40 grand, but do you read the character as uh, no, this was actually going to work out until stuff conspired to make it not work out? And then afterwards, it's just sort of like the dominoes falling.
1: Yeah, I I don't so and and part of that is because of so this is something that we should probably talk about it too, uh, as well. Part of it is so much my identification with Robert Mitchum as Jeff Bailey. Um, once he sees her for what. She is, and once we come back to the present where he's telling Anne the story, as Anne is driving him back to Wit. So, real quick plot: so everything that that happens, um, they they run away. Um, Jeff Bailey's partner Fisher finds them and is going to rat them out to Wit for money, and uh, um, Kathy shoots him. Kathy kills Fisher and uh, at that point she drives away Jeff finds out that she did steal the 40,000 and then he kind of leaves and goes off on his own uh, starts to own a gas station with a deaf mute with a deaf mute uh, uh, partner and falls in love with like the town you know sw- sweetheart there um, once that happens to me everything else plays true because that's what jeff bailey's character is and and his throughput throughout the rest of the movie is him you, you know there are kind of yeah there are some oh she is so beautiful and there is a scene where they kiss again but the whole time he realizes that she's poison and the rest of the movie plays on what type of a person is jeff is jeff the type of person who you know, can rise above the mix that he's been in to be worthy of Anne or as it shows up at the end of the movie, does he realize that for Anne to have the life that she deserves to have, he needs to kind of cut her loose, which he kind of does in, in wonderful fashion at the end of the movie. So for me, once that part happens and she kills Fisher and she leaves, that's the end of his relationship with her except for him to clear his name to get to a point with that he can be with Anne, if that makes sense.
0: That that actually brings up something as well that I was thinking about, which is that you talked about how Jeff realizes he needs to cut Anne loose, but it's not – I would want to throw this out there at you, see how you feel about it. The When he wants to cut her loose, I don't think it's because he feels like he is a person of – like moral failing or he's a bad person. Oh, he's not. Yeah. Yeah. He he's, he's, he's mostly just like, I'm just caught in a bad situation and I don't think I can get out of it because there's a line where near the end when Kathy's like, we're this, she essentially says, you know, you and I are the same and we should, you know, we deserve each other and all that stuff.
1: Well, and they are right. So at that ending, right. So, yeah. So, so, so that comes at the end and it's not until the end where he kind of realizes crap you know i'm gonna try and get out of this but you know i am in it with with her he did love her at one point he was willing to kind of let go one murder then a second murder happens then a third murder happens because of her and he's trying to kind of work it all out that it gets pinned on her and he can go live his happy life and it's at that end where So we realize, so at the end, multiple murders have occurred. Kirk Douglas is dead. It's now down to Jane Greer. She's the only one who can exonerate him of all these murders that have been framed on him. And she's like, you're going to have to deal with me now, but I still love you. Let's run back to Mexico where we met and kind of live our life. And that's that's at the point where I think he kind of realizes that's where the moral quandary hits, right? Because when he... So spoilers for a movie from 1947 but god damn it see this movie i i i I care for it so much he finally makes the determination that whatever happens he's gonna do what's right because that's what Anne expects of him so he makes a call and and that's when when they drive off there's a police blockade in their route and whatever happens after that happens after that but at the end um, the, the the, very end of the film is Anne with the local sheriff of the the Hick town where Jeff had had been staying running the gas station. And the sheriff had always been in love with Anne and uh, is walking with her now and, and is still trying to kind of move into that territory and she kind of rebuffs him and goes to the deaf mute and says, was was Jeff really gonna go with her?" And the deaf mute lies. He just lies and says yes, he was. And we know from watching the film, So there's no plot logic to this. There's no way that, yeah, this is the conversation I had with my wife and my son. They were like, how could they have told the deaf guy, you know, that it was a trick? And, and, And you have to kind of get past that and go into just movie logic. The deaf kid is lying to her to get her to move on with her life because that's what Robert Mitchum wanted. And it's not until that end point that he kind of realizes that he needs to just do what he has to do and cut her loose. And that's where the tragedy of, of film noir and, and the tragedy of this movie plays through is that at the end, Mitchum realizing that he may not be exactly like Kathy, but he's enough like her that he realizes that, look, if I can't get out of this, I need Anne to be cleaned from it. She can't be tainted by the past that I have kind of tangentially involved her in.
0: Yeah, I'd say he's more trapped than con- or than like culpable or anything.
1: Yeah, it, it it is. I, I mean, it, it, and he, he makes it very clear. There is a, toward the end of the movie, there is a confrontation between him and the sheriff where the sheriff's like, I don't want anything to happen to uh, Anne. And he's like, hey, it's going to be what it's going to be. She wants to be with me. F you because she doesn't love you. And he drives off. So even 10 minutes before the end of the movie, he's in that mindset. But it all comes down to choices. It comes down to when you are in that moment, what are you going to do? And in that moment, he makes the decision that he has to make that's for the best friend Anne. And that's where the tragedy of the film comes in. And, and that's where the classic kind of film noir, which typically don't have happy endings, that's where it winds up.
0: Yeah, uh, this seems like a good chance for me to talk about how I don't think I would ever... I mean, it's possible I might have seen Robert Mitchum in something, but it, I wouldn't remember. And so I'll just probably say this is probably the first Robert Mitchum thing I've seen. If Andy. this
1: is your first Robert Mitchum, then you may have seen one of the best Robert Mitchum films ever. <laughs> well, because the thing is, is that he, you can,
0: you can tell the, like based on the bad shit that's happening to him all throughout this movie, you can tell sort of the emotional reaction that it should respond, that it should produce. And he, and you can tell that it's there, but he always manages, to, he never betrays a sense of like, okay, the, he of just accepting that this is a bad thing that's happening and we're going to try and pivot from it. Like, he never loses his cool, he never, like, even when things are going bad and he's like trying to get out of situations, he's like, okay, yeah. well this is, <clears throat> he... he he maintains a fair, like not cool in the sense of I want to be him, but he just seems unaffected. He manages to portray being unaffected in a way that's like, makes you think that he can pretty much get out of anything.
1: He's resigned. And yeah, I, I, that's exactly it. There's a moment where, and this is one of the great things I love about the film as well. He, he fails a lot. He fails constantly. There's a great scene where, so there's a second murder that occurs um he's he's brought back to the present so out of the past come kathy and wit the kirk douglas camp um, character and now kirk douglas who is a kind of a crime lord he's got millions of dollars but there is an accountant who knows what's going on and has a binder so he wants him to get the binder back from this accountant so he Mitchum reluctantly agrees and what you find out is that it is going to be a double cross because of course they're going to murder the guy and uh, frame it on on him but he there's an amazing scene where he goes to talk to the guy with the the, the secondary femme fatale that the, the This girl, Mita, who is the guy's secretary and is setting everybody up and she just wants him to come pick her up and take him away so that she can they can do the next part of the scam. But he lets the guy know he's like, you're getting played for a fool here. I you know, and what winds up happening is he his plan is to get there very quickly and save the guy. But By the time he gets there, the guy is dead. So he takes the body, hides it in another room, comes back down to the taxi cab, who is a driver that he's been friends with, and he kind of hired to take him on there. And there's just this moment, he's like, what happened? And and Mitchum just has this great look on his face. He's like, I just got there a couple minutes too late. And you see the defeat on his face, but he just kind of gets resigned to it, and he's not going to let him... He's just going to keep going. No matter what defeat hits him, he's going to go through this the best way that he knows how. And it's such a great, beautiful moment of tragedy and loss and just failure in your main character. But your main character is just going to keep going because that's just what they do. They are built to go through to the end. And that's what Mitchum is in in this movie. He is an inevitability.
0: And the, uh, and right before and you mentioned it uh, in that scene but when he goes to the guy's house and is hanging with the secretary and he's just straight up saying the words you're going to be murdered <laughs> yeah, he did great <laughs> I, I was like holy shit he's just telling him this, these people are going to kill
1: you <laughs> so you're her cousin no my cousin is this guy over in Tahoe that uh, you know runs this it's just such a wonderful and, and that that kind of brings me to, to the other thing that, that I wanted to talk about is Um, the dialogue in this and the dialogue with Mitchum is just, it's on another level. It is phenomenal. So were there any, we had talked before about like favorite lines, but like, did, did anything stick out with you with him or, or just with the movie as a whole?
0: Right. So the, the two that I, uh, the two that I wrote, one of which actually ties back to uh, Mitchum's sort of, uh, let's say, I don't, I don't know if easygoing is the word, but like just sort of non-reacting or just sort of keeping things together was when he tells, uh, at, the, at the beginning when he's talking with Kirk Douglas and Fisher's, you know, running his mouth and Kirk Douglas says to Mitchum, he's like, well, you don't talk much. And he's like, well, I never learned anything listening to myself. And I was like, holy, oh, that, that, oh, that was a good one.
1: Every exchange between him and Douglas is just gold. And so much of that is the way that douglas just is he is terrifying with just being exceedingly polite and exceedingly friendly he projects a terror that is palpable in the film and every time he has an exchange with mitchum who dares to go up against him verbally it's 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 fireworks every time and and
0: yeah, let's. Uh, I had at least one more line I wanted to talk about, but this is a good chance to talk about uh, Kirk Douglas. Holy shit, that yeah. is, <laughs> it is it is wild because at like the very last scene that he has with Kathy, he finally he finally drops the yeah. the veneer, and it is like as horrifying as you would expect with all of the graphic violence that he says he's going to visit on her. But for the first hundred or so minutes of like, however, like the first rest of the movie up until that point, he is just the, like he never even, like, you know, the menace is there. It's just he he is stated like he is shot. Like, he was shot by Kathy. He wants to get her back. Mitchum rightly suggests, hey, are you going to kill her? And <laughs> she's like, no, no, no. I just want her back. And like <clears throat> you never believe that he is not the big bad of this movie. Never. And y- and you you're always like oh yeah he's totally the villain but he never drops the facade he never drops the fact that he or never drops the illusion of him just being this smiley you know freewheeling happy-go-lucky businessman until the literal very end and Mitchum isn't even there to see it so like it was it's really good like <laughs> Kurt, Mitch like uh Kathy Cat, does her thing a really good job but I think the two my two favorite uh, performances from the movie were Mitchum and and Douglas
1: Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Although, I will talk about one more person afterwards, but uh, keep going with what your second line is.
0: Uh, I think it's Kathy says to Mitchum, I'm taller
1: than Napoleon, and he says, oh, prettier too. Just so many great pieces. There's another line that they do. Um, one of the things that I love about the film is how he Mitchum is completely against... A lot of the tropes that you would normally think of when it comes to a movie of this time, time period, which is kind of the more like honoring the woman, making sure that the woman is protected and things like that. There's a great scene where earlier in the film, um, after he comes back. Uh, so they have the flashback, and then Anne, uh, the new love interest, drives him to uh, Whit Sterling's house, Kirk Douglas's house. Uh, Jeff finds out that Kathy is there again, uh, realizes that she came crawling back to him, and uh, he's told to spend the night there because he's going to get sent on a new assignment to kind of retrieve these uh, books and papers so the IRS doesn't get him for for fraud. So he's in the bedroom, and Kathy, of course, comes in through the balcony windows. Balcony windows play a wonderful part of this film. And uh, she she comes in, and she tries to play him again. And one of the best lines to this day I've heard in any movie is she says to him, I don't want to die. And he goes, I don't want to die either, but if I do, I'm going to die last. And it is Uh, such a great line. It is just like, look... I realize you're screwing with me, so if anything happens, I'm making sure you all go before I go. And it's just one of the classic, it is one of the top lines in any movie I've ever heard in my life. And just the way that Mitchum tosses it off. He is such an amazing presence on the screen when we talk about kind of the tough guy heroes of the 40s and the 50s and we talk about like characters like Bogart Mitchum does not get into the conversation enough and it's one of the other things I found funny too and you'll see this more the more films you watch from this time period, I find it fascinating how long their hair is. <laughs> it's just a weird thing. I don't know if you noticed this. Because everything shellacked back with, uh, you know, putty and, uh, you know, Dapper Dan stuff like that. But uh, dude, Mitchum's got some long-ass hair. If he let that thing shine loose, <laughs> he would look like a, like a crazy hippie from the 90s. But uh, it's just the way that he's put together. He is just such a tough guy, and he's not afraid... To break the conventions of movies by just telling her, "Look, whatever happens, you will die before I die." Just make that clear. Uh, and unfortunately, at the end of the movie (spoiler territory), uh, they 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 don't get out uh, alive, and uh, it's kind of simultaneous. But uh, technically, uh, I, he goes first. He does technically go first. He, he doesn't.
0: Uh, they don't get to. They don't get to pay off that particular
1: line. They don't, but it, it's a hell of an ending. Just you, you know, and and that's the that's the real truth of film noir in general. As you watch these movies, and it works in a different way, but it works. In the next movie, we're going to talk about <clears throat> uh, there are no happy endings. When you get to these moral dilemmas and you get to these decisions that need to be made, nothing is ended cleanly. Uh, and 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 this movie just perfectly kind of sums up that mentality in just a beautiful classic studio picture that does so much underneath. We didn't even really talk about, it. I realized we're almost 40 minutes in, into this. We didn't even talk about goddamn damn uh, Jacques Tournier's, uh photography and the way that he directs a scene. There are so many scenes of um, windows and bars and things that light the characters and characters hiding in shadow and for a film that largely takes place in daylight and takes place in rooms They find these wonderful moments to just enshroud the characters in half light to kind of talk through the conflicted emotions. There's a scene where uh, Mitchum hides behind. uh, He's waiting for one of the women to come out of a building, and he's hiding behind a bush. And this is such a classic tenet of of film noir. His face is half obscured, and there's this parallel to the conflicting emotions that are fighting inside him. That happens constantly throughout, throughout this movie. Movie. and Tournier who is 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 just a phenomenal master of using light and using shadow to convey mood even in a A-list studio picture like this there's enough small pieces there to show that these guys were truly artists they weren't just studio hacks that were hammering out a picture they were really trying to make something and provide subtext and, and and provide underlying meanings to what is essentially a studio detective picture
0: chris you mentioned i think that there was uh, another character you wanted to uh to highlight uh
1: Oh, I did. Yeah, we got to talk about Joe, <laughs> Joe the Heavy. Uh, uh, Kurt Douglas is second in in command. So in any other film, you know, around this time, your heavy is a heavy. He's a, you know, barely verbal kind of massive grunt who's there to break fingers. And this guy Joe Stefano's, he's the guy who actually finds Jeff at the beginning of the movie and brings him back to wit. He is dapper. He is a dapper, almost effeminate man. Very careful with his words. Uh, Very. actually reminded me
0: of uh, Dean Cain a little bit.
1: A little bit, yeah. there's There's this beautiful look to him. He's a handsome, dapper, attractive man. He's never threatening. His tone of voice is always... It's very measured. It's very calm. He never gets angry and it's a beautiful thing to play for what is essentially a side character who by the way has the greatest de- death in the movie so later on in the movie <laughs> he, he tracks Jeff he realizes that he's going back to his, uh, his deaf mute buddy at the gas station who goes fishing uh, in these rocky cliffs and he's standing on the top of the cliffs to shoot Jeff Bailey and the deaf mute kid takes his fishing rod hooks him in the coat and pulls him off the cliff it is wonderful It is just a wonderful, holy crap, I did not expect this to happen moment in the movie. Um, And it's played beautifully. His relationship with the kid is played beautifully. But it's a wonderful end to a character who could have just been any other heavy in a movie. And instead, this guy, its uh, Paul Valentine is the actor who plays him. Plays him with just this wonderful, methodical, grace and dalliance and just kind of effervescence that makes him stand out in a movie where when you have freaking kirk douglas and robert mitchum and this guy can make an impression on you that's a feat in and of itself and the fact that he does that is beautiful in this movie
0: since you mentioned it as well, I think I also want to like, I actually really enjoyed the, the mute character as well.
1: Um, they don't give him as much to do. They even only call him the kid. He doesn't even have a name in the movie.
0: Yeah. But I, but I, but I liked him because although the fact that like Joe, who is like super whip smart about making sure that, uh, any conversations they have aren't within visual sight of the kid because he can read lips. Like it, it, it forms part of the plot, but, uh, I don't know. I like for, for being a minor character. Um, I thought that it was, I was, I was like, this could be really super easily cringy. And it didn't strike me at least as being, uh, cringy and the sort of like looking back on it's, you know, decades later kind of thing.
1: No, not at all. And in, in, in fact, it's, it's, it's one of those small touches that just puts another imprint on the movie, right? Because the, the gas station attendant could have been anybody could have been anybody, could have been a great role for an actor who, you know, maybe was up and coming, was looking to make a name later on down the line. But the way that they do it, and the way that they played it, it's, it's not played for anything other than what it is. He's not demeaned, he's not You know, his deafness isn't really played to a point because, in fact, it's him who saves Jeff, not the other way around. You'd figure if someone was sneaking up, the deaf-mute kid's not going to be able to hear it or raise an alarm. But, in fact, it's him who saves the day. And it's just another reason why this movie kind of goes against the grain while being the classic example of what film noir is.
0: I do wish that if we're talking about character, like, I think yes. I mean, I think he's as good... Well situated in the movie, if there's someone I I kind of wish feels a bit I wouldn't say odd but like I kind of wished we had more of was the diner owner uh or the uh, the diner owner at the beginning of the movie yeah she like she's she has like the first scenes worth of dialogue in the movie and and she just goes on this like super well written snappy whip fast dialogue uh conversation between the sheriff and Joe and. I'm just like, who is this person? I need to know more. And then she just completely disappears out of the movie after.
1: Yeah, it's a great sense of promise, right? Because the opening of the movie makes you think it's going to be one thing. It's going to be about something that happens in this small town and what's going on. And I think... not that I ever want to say that there's a negative about this movie because I right. I genuinely don't, but the stuff in the town is probably the weakest stuff Anne and the sheriff that's in love with her. They're the weakest parts of the movie, unfortunately, because the movie uses them as the carrot for Mitchum to get back to, right? That's what he longs for. That's his goal. Um, but because that's his goal that he has to work through to get to, there's necessarily kind of a lack of emphasis on it, and some things get lost in that shuffle, like that amazing diner owner. Um, there's another section where people are coming out of a church because there's a manhunt going on because Jeff's been framed for two murders, and the sheriff is talking to another guy, where they're talking about, you know, what are we going to do? What sh- who should we follow? And I just the way that that set up for that brief moment is really nice, and I would have loved to have followed that story longer. But because of the nature of the story and what this is, and because it's so tight, we only get those fragmented moments. And unfortunately they get lost in the shuffle a bit.
0: If there's a character, I think I did not like in the movie. And I don't, and I don't say this as a negative of the movie, but I think a character, well, I think the character, I think just kind of sucks. And maybe is written to be sucky as the sheriff. Um, The way that he is not only like, he's not just trying to, you know, stop someone that he thinks is a killer, but is like, well, he's, this person who i think is a killer is also dating my sweetheart and like i've known her for longer it should be me that she's with this sort of deserving entitlement kind of felt a bit gross to me
1: yeah he's the worst character in the movie and and he he's played he if, if anyone's played as a trope it's him right he's the barricade to to uh, jeff's goal right and it, it just doesn't work i i, I agree with you 100 percent
0: And again, like, I think having a character like that in the movie is, you know, it can do be functional and do the thing that you need to. But I was just like, "Uh, fuck this guy. He sucks. Um, Is there any sort of final thoughts you wanted to to uh, share sort of any sort of reflections on on this before we move
1: on? Yeah, I mean, just real quick. So, again, you know, I tried to with this pick, I wanted to kind of come with. Because I knew I was much more familiar with the genre and the period as a whole than you. So I wanted to come away with what's the perfect example of this genre? You know, there are more famous films with bigger actors and bigger scenes, but to me, this really typifies what film noir is. So. Um, it, it's no secret. I'm not going to go on about how much I love the genre and how much I love the period. So what I would kind of want to end with before we jump into our second film is for you, how did this work for you? And you know, if my goal was to introduce you to a genre and a time period that would interest you enough to pursue further, did this movie do the job?
0: Oh, for sure. Um, I, so I think at the beginning uh, when you were doing the introduction to the theme, you talked a little bit about the art, the debated uh, nature of what constitutes film noir, where people sometimes like will have different opinions about what is film noir, what is not film noir. And that uh, f- that presented a bit of a challenge for me in like, trying to pick a movie because uh, I was like, well, you tell me what film noir is and then we'll pick something. Um, but in the uh, something that Uh, Just being more familiar with sort of tropes that get referenced in later pop culture, which is a lot of how I know about it, or my sort of very limited exposure to it. uh, It seemed I assumed that it was all like detective, like solving mysteries. Someone's been murdered and we're going to find out who did it. And this movie, while certainly there's like some it touches on that a little bit, but it's almost all about just the double crosses and the plots and who's going to screw who and who, and who's going to make it out of this alive. And it's mostly just, and, and which is not to say that I wouldn't have been unhappy with a movie that was mostly solving a mystery because that's what the second movie is going to be about. And I love that one. Um, but it was, uh, I, I guess if this is, I think our next movie will talk about how it's a bit more uh, sort of reflective on the genre of film noir uh, if, yeah. if this one is if this one is not as sort of reflective in that sense the, the sort of well this is this isn't a movie like we know who we pretty much know every, how who who murdered everyone this is mostly about just sort of backstabbing and double crossing and I was again I had to I had to watch it a couple times to sort of track everything but I yeah no it was it was a hell of a good time
1: oh great because then uh, i will introduce you to movies of the film noir that have nothing to do with detectives double crosses and things like that there are some amazing movies that just kind of work off of again um, you know dark film so it it really works off of morality and it works off of these choices and the tragedy of that and There's some wonderful examples that have nothing to do with that, Uh, but I'm so glad that this worked for you, and I'm so glad that this kind of will then segue to the next film that we're going to talk about, because, oh boy, the next film really comments on the classic of this genre as a whole. So, are we ready to talk about it?
0: Yeah, let's do it. second movie is 1949's the third man directed by carol reed and starring joseph cotton Alida valley i hope i said that one right uh and orson welles um are the top three billed actors and yeah the reason i picked it is real simple i didn't know much of which movies to pick uh for this genre so i just started googling best film noir movies and came across this one but I gotta say, I'm really happy with uh <laughs> <laughs> with how this one turned out yeah um, look
1: if 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 you're blindly picking a film noir out of a hat, you could have done so much worse than pick basically one of the greatest films of all time
0: <laughs> i mean, i I mean, I specifically tried to look for best, so I feel like I kind of uh rigged the game a little bit, but uh I was uh still very happy with how that went and there's so much we can talk about with this movie, but I think I want to start with my, the sort of my main takeaway from this. And I mentioned this uh, when we were talking about out of the past was how I watched both of these movies the first time as sort of, just sort of like letting it wash over me and sort of, just sort of being bounced around like ping pongs as the, uh, as the characters move through the plot and not re- and and then only later on the second viewing, sort of pausing and reflecting and sort of like trying to look for how the movie is working and what the movie is trying to say. Um, and the reason that is, is because in a, as a very brief description of the plot, and we'll get into spoilers and we'll talk about all that stuff. But basically, uh, Joseph Cotton plays a man named... Martin's,
1: I think, right. Holly Martins. Holly Martins, right. A beautiful. We should just very briefly. A beautiful name in a movie filled with beautiful names. <laughs> it's
0: true. It's a. I. It's, it's a pretty name. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, Holly Martins arrives in post World War II Vienna, uh, which is occupied, which is sort of split up into four uh, different regions controlled by different uh, Allied powers. I think it's the U.S., the English, the French, and the Russians. So they basically carved up. uh, They basically carved it up, and each of the powers has its own section. And he's there to see his friend Harry Lime, who is played by Orson Welles. And he, on the promise of getting a job, he is an author. He writes uh, detective stories. And when he arrives, he finds out that Harry Lime has just passed away. And uh, believing that there is foul play. At work in Harry Lime's death, he sets about to investigate a mystery that includes um, Orson Welles' girlfriend, who is uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Mm-hmm. Valley, and uh, also some of his uh, people who are there to witness the scene, and also some of Harry Lime's uh, acquaintances/slash accomplices. I ever want to talk about it, and so the movie sort of just sort of follows him through this uh, investigating of the mystery, and then sort of what. Comes up as a result of that, which we'll talk about later. So I just don't want to get to that right yet. And so my first experience of watching the movie was just like, yep, this guy is just, he thinks that there's something wrong and he's just going to go ask some questions because he cares about his friend. And while not necessarily, obviously, he's starting from a place of disadvantage because he's new to the area. He doesn't know people. He has to catch up and learn stuff. I didn't feel like that disadvantage um was his fault he was just trying to catch up and then in rewatching the movie a second time uh i believe you had sent me a text in between viewings that said something along the lines of uh, holly martins is one of the most hapless detectives ever he got bit by a parrot and that's and i was like oh yeah that is kind of weird that he did that and then i went and again i read the plot summary and just sort of checked out made sure i had all my uh because I wanted to really figure out like, what who is conspiring against who? Who is trying to do what? Um, and try and get that all nailed down for my second viewing. And then upon watching it the second time, realizing that Holly Martins is the dumbest man in movies that I've ever seen trying to solve a mystery. He is completely incompetent. And in fact, the movie. And now I'm and in the second viewing, realizing. The And this isn't just like a badly written movie where they're trying to make a detective seem smart. But if you actually thought about it, he's an idiot. The movie is full of commentary about how this guy's an idiot. And yeah, that's kind of where I want to start. So, Chris, how does that
1: how does that land with you? <laughs> so so I am in 100 percent agreement with you. Uh It. it it, 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 it it's spot on and to kind of really piece it apart we have to talk about a number of things so first off um, this was written by Graham Green one of the preeminent authors of you know post-war literature a uh, very famous writer um, this is a British film which right away differentiates itself from what we would typically you know think of when we think of classic Hollywood film noir so there's already a different taste to it um, But so much of it, to your point, relies on how ineffectual Holly Martins is. Um, And there are just so many things that spring to mind with this movie. So I'm going to ramble off just a bunch of things, and then we'll kind of get into the nitty-gritty. Just kind of first off, uh, yeah, he is completely ineffectual. Uh, He doesn't solve anything. Really, everything is handed to him. And when the ending occurs... The last scene of the movie is him still being completely wrongheaded about an assumption that he makes. Uh, and, it's, and it's hilarious. And that's another thing about The Third Man. The Third Man, in the best way, is very blackly comic. In in the in a way that only a British film could be. So again, written by Graham Greene, directed by Carol Reed. Uh, you have Joseph Cotton as your lead, who is a phenomenal... Actor in that he can portray pretty much anything you want him to portray. He was one of the mercury players So he's he's been with Orson Welles since the beginning He was the co-lead with Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. He was the star of Kane's second f- of a uh, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, he was the star of Welles' second film, The Magnificent Ambersons. He is the star of one of my favorite Hitchcock movies, Shadow of a Doubt, where he plays a killer. I mean, this guy can do anything. And to have him play a bumbling, hapless, kind of penny-dime novel author is wonderful. As he stumbles his way through another character of the movie, which is post-war Vienna, uh, it, it's, it's just lovely how all those things come together to paint a very black portrait of what post-war life was like in Europe, of what a film noir does, there is real tragedy and moral quandaries when you find out what the crime that's being committed actually it is, and how it's affecting people, and how those people who are perpetrating the crime respond to it. There's some real deep commentary there about that. And all at the same time, Holly Martins is just an idiot, and it is fantastic There's so much to talk about whether we're talking about the way that Cal Reed does a lot of canted angles to kind of accentuate things. The way that Joseph Cotton plays Martin's, he does get bitten by a parrot at one point during an escape, and it's hilarious. Uh, the fact that kind of we kind of glossed over the whole meaning of the title, but the whole point of the movie is um, Harry Lime invites Holly Martins over to for a job, and when Holly Martins get there, Harry Lime is dead. And as he's investigating this murder that may be suspicious, he's talking to all the people. And it comes out that two people definitely were there to carry the body away and saw it. One was the doctor and and one was a friend, but there was a third man there and they don't know who the third man was. So part of the mystery is who is this mysterious third man who was at Harry Lyme's death? And at this point, uh, you should have seen the movie. We should know the spoilers here. The spoiler, the third man is Harry Lyme because Harry Lyme is not actually dead. Uh, he faked his own death because of what's going on, which is essentially he is black marketing penicillin and selling it to hospitals and killing children. Holy crap. This is 1949. And this is a movie about a guy who is killing children in hospitals
0: <laughs> in, <laughs> that is- in, in post-World War II Vienna.
1: In post-World War II Vienna, when they need a shitload of penicillin. This is batshit insane. And the way that Carol Reed plays it is so blackly comic that it is it, it is wonderful. I mean, part of it is the Zither, the very famous Zither soundtrack that is played throughout out, out the movie. Some of it is the way that he... V- very much elevates the drama by use of his camera angles, by his use of the city. So much of this is shot on the, on a location, and it's gorgeous. So much of this comes from him and Graham Greene being in Vienna, writing the story, understanding what needs to be done. You, you, if you watch kind of documentaries and features on this, there's no way that the climactic, famous ending of the chase through the sewers happens unless you are intimately knowledgeable about Vienna and all of that comes together in this beautiful black portrait of a murder, a mystery, a woman who, you know, uh was in love with the guy who's doing these evil things and how does her knowledge of the evil things he's doing affect her? Um how, how does it affect Holly who is all who is just there to get a job and kind of dives into the plot of the type of stories that he's there to write? All of that is this beautiful commentary and then just gets wrapped up in this in this crazy adventure that at the end of it just kind of thumbs its nose at America and says we can do exactly what you do and we can do it with a cheek and and a flippancy that is unbelievable. It it is just one of the the great films of all time.
0: I think I want to spend a bit, just a bit more time on Holly Martin's as idiot, um, because but before we move on, because there's definitely a lot of other stuff I want to talk about, some of which you've already hinted at. Um, so he shows up. He, um, the guy, uh, is it Calloway or Callahan? I forget. He mispronounces it repeatedly. Well, that's the
1: whole joke, right? He keeps yeah. saying Callahan. He's like, I'm not no. Irish. It's Calloway. <laughs> which, uh,
0: yeah, okay. So Calloway. Um, Calloway tells him in like the very first scene they have together that, Oh yeah, he's a racketeer. Like Harry Lyman's is a racketeer. He's a bad person. It's good that he's dead. And, uh, like he gives you the solution. He gives you the answer at the very beginning and Holly Martin's (laughs) because, and, and again, this is why I think it's actually intentional why I think it's actually genius and brilliant. And I just totally missed it the first time was that he's an author of, uh, of detective stories of pulpy detection stories or detective yep. stories and he thinks oh well he's this is a crooked cop from one of my stories clearly there's foul play at work here i have to go exonerate my friends despite the fact that like no there is no even though obviously he runs ends up discovering that harry lime is still alive the death like his death is not treated as suspicious. It's It was a car accident. There's no investigation into his death. It's just he was a terrible person and then by freak accident happened to die. That's the story. And he's like, I'm going to solve this. It's like, there's no mystery, my dude. <laughs> but he's so convinced it is because he writes these stories. He's so convinced that pulpy detective stories is actually how reality works yes that's exactly it and so he in that that thread follows him through like talking to like he he he's anything that he stumbles onto that is true that is unknown anything that he reveals is completely by accident and nothing that he has to do nothing that he is like can take credit for um he starts to go after Harry Lyme's uh, girlfriend played by Miss Valley and uh, he and they he tries to strike up something with them and my read on that is that like my read on on her character is that she's still very much in grief she's still very much in love uh with Harry Lyme and but he's thinking oh well she's the femme fatale that I'm gonna be with because I'm the detective investigator." this is how these stories work but she actually doesn't have any time for his bullshit that's
1: uh, that, that that is the whole thing of this movie. Holly Martins is constantly trying to make the events that surrounding him into the dime store novels that he writes and at every turn it fails him.
0: To me that feels like that elevates this almost to the level of a sort of I think we hinted at this before a reflective a reflexive nature of like trying to do some kind of commentary on film noir as a genre itself or like trying to say like and you mentioned that this is like being a, a a british a british production them's kind of thumbing their nose at the at you know at hollywood saying hey look we can do this and like sort of run circles around you this almost feels like hey look at your dumb stories we can do them but like way better
1: yeah now that may not be intentional <laughs> but i mean there is a flippancy to how easily reed makes this kind of movie how easily You know, Wells and Cotton and everyone performs in it, that it is, to your point, it's a reflection of what Hollywood is doing. So, this is two years after Out of the Past. So, we've established our classic example of the genre. And in two years, here we have on the other side of a pond of The Pond, uh, a a film that reflects it back in such a bleakly comic way, hits all the buttons, but yet still also has this commentary on all these moral quandaries. So it does everything that film noir does, but it also reflects film noir back on itself. And there's just not more praise that I could keep upon this film.
0: In my initial... Viewing like it's definitely the second time watching this was when I started to like realize what this movie was actually about. But something that caught my attention the first time, again only being familiar with tropes of the genre beforehand, was the the location, the the, the European ness of the story, and that definitely comes through in the sound, uh, in the in the the soundtrack, which is at first I thought was a it set it was i I liked it i thought it was lively and good but also set weird with like the mystery nature of it until i realized oh wait a minute (laughs) there's this the the comic once the comic nature of it hit then the soundtrack made more sense um but that that definitely doesn't sound like the jazz that you would the smoky jazz you would expect to hear um and then but also the and then of course the I think the, the big draw for me was the thing that sort of struck me as astonishing was the fact that they were shooting actually in Vienna post-World War II. And so you ha- like this, is, and this is in the late, uh, late forties. So like this is only, you know, four years removed from the end of World War II. Yep. Um, so this is not for us. We can go back and we can watch it and think this is of a period. This is like, this is old timey stuff, but this would have actually been like the actual, the actual crime that uh Harry Lime is committing is a real thing. Like they like the um I don't remember who it was, but I think it might have been green. But basically this this the idea of people like stealing penicillin, diluting it, and then giving it to people who then died, that was a real thing. And they just use that for the story. Yeah. Um, Which like it is it is actually like hyper contemporary. And that also works with the locations as well because like Obviously now you, if you wanted to shoot a bombed out city uh, and there was none available, you could just create out of CGI, but they just like being in Vienna, all of this like gorgeous architecture, um, contrasted against like, like actual rubble. Like that was, that was not set up for the movie, but was just there because they're so close to world war two.
1: Yeah. The authenticity of the setting really gives a lift to everything that happens in the film yeah this i mean the the whole to your point right the 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 story was it was kind of based off graham had embedded himself there to kind of soak up the culture and kind of figure out what to write and had heard the story about black market penicillin racketeering and, and stuff like that and drafted his story based off of some some real life events um all of that gives such an air a, a palpable sense of authenticity to the film and it it's it's really indescribable if you think about the fact that this has only occurred, you know, a few years after all of this stuff actually happened. So think of it as like, you know, nine eleven, and 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 having a film that deals with the consequences of things like that in two thousand five, two thousand six. It it it's that prescient.
0: That was definitely where my mind went. Of like, if we had movies, and obviously I know that there has been at least a couple um, that are specifically trying to like recount. Uh, recount those events but those came I think later and uh, definitely in the immediate immediate, uh, aftermath I don't think that you could have gotten away with having a film that was about that specifically because people would have thought it was too, the wounds were still too fresh and still too like hadn't healed yet Um, and yet it sounds like by all accounts the reception to this movie was like overwhelmingly positive. Yeah,
1: yeah. That was definitely my understanding.
0: And while we're talking about sort of the, like, very real, very disastrous sort of human costs that sort of provided the uh, story impetus for this movie, this is probably a good time to talk about uh, Orson Welles. Um, yes. He is actually in so little of this movie, um, which, A, I think is speaks to sort of his commitment to the craft, where he is a... Uh, you know, he doesn't have to be on screen the whole time. I mean, he obviously his performance, I think, is very compelling, but he is actually yeah. and 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 like a lot of the, you know, marketing sort of is like, hey, we've got Orson Welles come come see the Orson Welles movie. But he actually as far as actual presence in the movie, he's talked about throughout the whole movie, but it only shows up in the last third.
1: Well, that's a so that's a great point. So yeah, he he doesn't show up until an hour into the movie, um, and at this point, he was incredibly famous because Citizen Kane had been such a huge event in in movie history. There uh, before that, he was known because he did War of the Worlds, right? So the, he he was n- notorious for the radio play. Um, he was a very well known and famous. Um, Stage director, uh, particularly for his Shakespearean plays that he had put on at, at the time. Prior to this, people would have known him from Natalie Citizen Kane, another fantastic film noir, The Lady from Shanghai. Um, the Stranger, which I think you watch is kind of prep work toward getting to the, the the Third Man, which is another great example of a film noir, one that he directed and has a co-starring role in. But here, he, he is firmly aware of the best role is the role that everybody talks about and then you show up an hour later so that's the big the big kick of the third man is you know harry Lime is the third man and oh yeah harry Lime just happens to be played by orson Welles. so when orson Welles shows up an hour in he milks it for all it's worth and he's one of those actors directors writers creators who knows how to milk a scene and play it for all it's worth so every scene you see him in he is absolutely magnetic. You cannot take his eyes off of him.
0: Yeah. I think that like, to me, that was what I noticed most about his character because in the, like in the very fact of his, of his character's crimes, he is like a despicable human being. Like he is like, Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like if you want to go by legal definitions of war criminal, I don't know where I I couldn't tell that to you, but he's definitely a person that needs to go away for life. Like, absolutely reprehensible just the worst but but he's Orson Wells
1: yeah oh also completely sells out his girlfriend which we didn't even talk about i yeah. mean the reason why she hasn't seen him and she gets deported is because he sold her out to stay in vienna yeah this guy is a dirtbag of the highest order
0: yeah absolutely scumbag and yet the first like other than the first like revealing shot when the window gets open you see the light come on his face when they actually when he actually finally meets up with uh with martins he's just all like smiling and glad handing and just like that effortless charm and he manages to like keep that going for so long that it's 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 impressive. I was like, I know you're a horrible human being, but you're also just like putting on this show that is like, I think, I mean, I know that people really have a high respect for the cuckoo clock speech. Um, And I mean, as a piece of written material, it's very good. That was a part where I was like, Oh, you're like, you're a psychopath.
1: Yeah. Uh, and you're also monologuing, which I mean, now we yeah, have also, a meme for, her, but he's monologuing at that point.
0: Yeah but but it is i think it speaks to his talents as a performer where he can uh absolutely sucker you in uh with that kind of performance even while you're fully aware and like have been from the beginning of the movie because like we even before he gets to the point where he can you know where he finally accepts the truth it's pitched as the truth is revealed but really people have been telling him this whole time like not just uh not just Calloway, but also um, his accomplices that he goes to see, like uh, the one... Oh, let me just check out the look, the name here because I remember I wrote this down at one point. I'll probably set this out. Um, when Martins goes to visit uh, Baron Kurtz, which is one of uh, Lime's associates, he asks him, is he a racketeer? And he's like, well, we're all racketeers. Like I do it, <laughs> everyone does it. That's how you get by. Like is there's never a no one ever says that Harry Lyme was not a racketeer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you, you, you have this in your head the whole time, even before you get this, like the full scope and grab. Yeah. Because situation. so,
1: so, so what they do is they paint him as like this, like the roguish scoundrel, right? Like kind of like the Han Solo. Yeah. He smuggles, but he's a good guy. And it's not until later when you realize what he's doing, that that inverts itself. And you're like, Oh, this is an actual roguish scoundrel. This is a dirtbag of the highest order.
0: Okay, so we did this for Out of the Past. Um, I have some of my, uh, I have some of my favorite lines written down. Uh, are there and a lot of them revolve around Martin's uh, being a complete idiot. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you? Are there? Before I go on a tear, uh, did you? Were there any? Are there any lines from the movie? Because this movie is a really good dialogue movie too. Is there anything? It that is. You, uh, anything that you calls to mind for you?
1: So, um, I, I, I don't have the exact lines in my head. I'm, I'm not working on notes here, but there are just a couple of kind of just wonderfully delivered moments that I'll call out. So earlier in the beginning, um, there's, and I can't remember the name of the corporal who, um, is a big fan of his work, but, uh, there's, I don't brief, think they give him a name. I don't know if they give him a name or not. He, he, he's, but there's, um, Cat- Calloway's second-in-command is this kind of big guy who is the super happy, hey, I'm a huge fan of your work, I love this book, I I love that book. And there's a moment where Holly Martins, again, he thinks he is the character in a film noir. So he gets uppity. And this second-in-command just punches him in the face and knocks him down. Just one punch. Colt him, but then as he helps him up, just keeps talking through. Oh man, I really love this one book that you did. This is just so fantastic. And it's just these little moments. Again, we'll keep hammering at home, but one of the things that really comes away is just how much Holly Martins doesn't learn in the third man. And the other part is nonverbal at all, but it's one of my favorite moments in the movie is just the very, very end so, in the very, very end, they bury Harry Lyme a second time. This time, for real, because he, he dies in the sewers. Um, Holly Martin shoots him. And um, Anna, who's the... The the ostensibly the the femme fatale, although she, she's really just the girl in the middle of the trouble here. Uh, that Holly has fallen in love with, and over the course of the movie, has completely ineptly tried to woo her. Um, and she wants nothing to do with him. And the end of the movie is him kind of being driven back to the airplane to leave to go back to america and he decides he's going to get out he says you know what no way callaway thanks you can just drop me off here at the end of the road by the cemetery because he sees anna walking by and he's like this is my this is my last chance and the last scene is a beautiful very very long take of him standing on the corner of a street uh by like a cart waiting for her to walk by and it takes like a good minute or two for her to catch up to him and she just passes him by and that's how the movie ends he still has not learned a thing and without a word the movie nails home just how ineffectual he is and it's and it's brilliant it's it's really just one of those classic endings that i can't picture ending any other way
0: i will say that in a movie that is filled with some absolutely gorgeous breathtaking cinematography that last shot of her cuz cuz again it goes on really long it starts off with him in front of her as she's walking down the street she's going to eventually cross paths with him and then but then when she gets there she just keeps walking and doesn't stop and then keeps walking past <laughs> and never looks back just eyes ahead all the time it is one of the best shots in hit film history as far it as is. i'm concerned it is so damn good (laughs) it's lovely it's really good and uh you talked about uh uh, martin's ineffectually trying to woo anna and at one point he's trying to impress her and she just casually says i don't know anything anymore except that i want to be dead too um and she she that could be coming from a place of (laughs) it could be coming from a place of her being in grieve, like grieving for her for her lover. Like she's she he's dead, she's sad, that's true. But I want to read it as I would rather die than listen to you talk for another second. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: it's great. <laughs> it, it it definitely means that. Even <laughs> it's it's under the line, but it's there.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much uh that's pretty much all I have for this one. I think it was I was I, again kind of lucked into it by virtue of sort of the way that we chose the theme and picked movies and all that stuff it wasn't like i can't take credit for being like super like insightful about having like i i I nailed it but i i do walk (laughs) away from this being incredibly grateful that like oh man i got to watch
1: that that was really good well i was incredibly grateful too because it is a movie that i own and have seen before but i hadn't seen it in a number of years and watching it in context with another film noir film Um, this is the first time I was able to really kind of catch to the point that I'm just going to keep hammering the point because you said it so eloquently. Um, this is the first time I was able to really see a lot of the reflection that the film does to the genre specifically. And it just made it so much more of an enriching experience to kind of watch the films that I had known and loved for so long and then see this as a reflection back. It kind of brought a whole new angle to the film for me uh, and just made it better.
0: Also, I really like that the, uh, the soundtrack or the theme for the movie was, uh, released and like, was a really successful musical release. And like the person who performed it, like it basically made the rest of his life and career possible. He just sort of like <laughs> was able to like, and they had just sort of, and they had just told him, I think to like improv over the movie, just like play whatever over the movie. And he just sort of came up with stuff and yeah, sort of on the fly. And then that sort of like ended up defining the rest of his life. That's... It's, it's, it's if it had gone. I mean, because it's it went well for him. I, it makes me really happy.
1: Yeah, Anton Karas. So yeah, supposedly when they were in Vienna, Reed found him in a you know place and said, "Hey, would you compose the music for the film?" And this was his first kind of chance doing that. And it's it's there's nothing else like it. Uh it, it is so distinctive and it puts such an imprint on the movie that I can't imagine the movie working if it didn't have the Zither soundtrack to it.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to do it for uh for The Third Man. Uh before we wrap up for the day, uh are th- I think we I like doing this last time where we had uh, films somehow related uh, to the topic that we would want to uh, recommend people if they want to go in uh, go do some more stuff of their own. So Chris. Uh, you're the master here in this subject. What? Uh, <laughs> where are you going to point people if they want to check out some more film, film uh, noir?
1: There are so many directions you can go in, so I'm going to keep it really brief and really specific to kind of re- reflect and connect to what we've talked about today. So obviously, um, if you know, both of these films, so highly recommended. If you want to branch off and check out some other things, um, just to kind of talk about great film noirs that were written by um authors um i can't recommend them enough it's one of my favorite movies of all time the big sleep uh which is humphrey bogart and lauren bacall uh with a screenplay written by william faulkner um directed by howard hawks and it's uh one of the philip marlowe mysteries so philip marlowe one of the greatest detectives ever written by the author raymond chandler this is one of his mysteries um It is labyrinth in its plot, and I may have mispronounced that, but what the hell, who cares, it's late at this point. Uh, But just, again, for dizzying dialogue, uh, double-cross after double-cross, and just a superlative Humphrey Bogart performance, um, I would say it is the quintessential Raymond Chandler kind of... Philip Marlowe performance, except I want to recommend one more movie that's not nearly as well-known, and that is a 1944 film called Murder My Sweet*. Uh, so the reason I found out about this film was way back when, when DVDs and box sets were really popular, Warner Brothers put out a series of box sets called um, Film Noir. Great great Film Noir sets. And the very first set was six films, one of which was out of the past, and that's how I learned about that film. And the other one was Murder My Sweet*, which is... Um, Another Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe, but instead of Humphrey Bogart, who really made the film, um, made the character famous, and then later on, Elliot Gould pays, uh, plays him in Farewell, My Lovely, uh, this stars Dick Powell, who is mainly a song and dance man. Um, that was what he was known for, but this is him playing Philip Marlowe, uh, and it's two years before Bogart does it in Farewell, My in in um, The Big Sleep, and it's a great great classic detective hard as nails film noir. It's not as twisting and turning as um, The Big Sleep. Uh, it's a killer performance. There are some great, exaggerated, almost surrealist moments in the film uh, that work really, really well. So, uh, can't recommend both of those movies a- enough. And we mentioned it earlier in the podcast, so I'll give it one more shout-out, just to connect to Orson Wells. So, as, as famous as Orson Wells is, and as big as he was, in um, The Third Man. He made a couple film noirs before then, uh, both of which he stars and directs, and that is The Stranger, which is a great film noir about um, Nazis hiding in America, uh, also starring Edward G. Robinson, and then also um, The the Lady from Shanghai with him and Rita Hayworth, where he plays an Irish guy, and the accent doesn't always work, uh, but um, he does some stunning camera work in there. The, The climax takes place in a hall of mirrors Uh, and it's just lovely and again it's 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 wells with that charisma and that charm but now he's playing the lead and and a guy who kind of falls in over his head with a dame uh just just a couple classic noirs to kind of get you up and running for the genre
0: that is uh that's a lot to a lot of meat to chew on and
1: uh i like it phil noir is a meaty genre
0: so for myself just again being not having that uh, absolute uh, depth of experience and knowledge, I kind of turned to uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the more recent movies that have sort of drawn on that, some stuff that like fall because when i because I specifically made a conscious decision to stick with you in terms of the classic stuff first the main our two main movies. but when I was looking at like what is film noir, what constitutes it, a lot of the stuff um, that came up under neo Noir is a lot of movies that I, there was a lot more movies that I was familiar with um, whether it was firmly or even loosely based in those genres. And I think that, so there's a bunch of ones that I could pick that sort of at least have some elements of the genre in there. But I think the one that sort of really, I think tries to do a, and actually I think in the spirit of third man, but like several decades later tries to comment on film noir is uh, kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Uh, by Shane Black, um, starring Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. This is a absolutely hilarious movie, uh, one that manages to get just some ridiculously good performances out of uh, out of RDj and uh, out of Val Kilmer too. Like I think I mean, you remember Tombstone and he's and Val Kilmer's great in Tombstone, but you most recently thought of him in stuff like, Actually he's also really good in Spartan. But um but I think of Val Kilmer always as Batman Forever, which I don't like at all. Um but he is absolutely wonderful as gay Perry. Um and Robert Downey Jr., he (laughs) this comes right before Iron the first Iron Man. And to see him in that movie and then go straight to Iron Man, I was like, oh, this person is entirely compelling, and I would watch 20 odd movies with him in it or however many he did with iron man um and so it's and it's and shane black is in terms of writing that's his his writing is always like super whip smart and uh and really good and so yeah that uh, kiss kiss bang bang is the one for me
1: that's a fantastic movie and i think i i think you nailed it with that last comment uh, the the thing that really draws A parallel to me between Kiss 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 Bang Bang and some of the film noir is the way that Shane Black writes dialogue and the whip smart attitude and the twists and turns that things take. Um, there's a there's a huge kind of uh, homage and respect being played to the films uh, of the 40s and 50s that, that that really took the genre to where it wanted to go it, it, it's a great 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 film can't can't back your choice up enough
0: well and and even more specifically uh, the characters in that movie also share like obsession and familiarity and just sort of a deep love of those pulpy detective stories which actually matches up with martin's although in Martin's case it is hundred percent uh it to his detriment <laughs> yeah no, <laughs> not, not so much not, not so much in this movie but uh yeah well thanks so much for uh for hanging out with me again chris thanks for anyone who has uh listened so far we appreciate uh appreciate all the the listens do whatever you do with podcasts when you're done with them we'll uh we'll catch you guys next time thanks so much thanks bye